So if you're someone who is quite stressed or worried or fearful or anxious about the coronavirus, then stop and ask yourself, what specifically am I afraid of? Don't be general, but what specifically am I afraid of? So if you're afraid for a loved one or a close friend, what specifically are you afraid of happening to them? If you're afraid of them falling ill, well, that's part of samsara, isn't it? And they've been ill many times before. If you're afraid of them dying, you know that's going to happen sometime anyway. So if it's something that you know is going to happen, happen sometime, then it's good to familiarize yourself with that idea and recognize that that too is part of samsara and that we cannot control everything. Are you afraid for yourself? If so, what specifically are you afraid is going to happen to you? If you're afraid that you're going to get sick or you're going to be in pain, that too is part of samsara. Have you not thought about that before? 
in your meditation? Is that a completely new idea? And if you are afraid that you're going to die, then isn't that fear useful for your practice to get you to really practice and take the Dharma to heart? Have you meditated on death before and thought about your own death and made peace with it? If you're afraid of dying because of this virus, then you need to do some meditation to work on that. Are you afraid that the world is going to fall apart or society will fall apart? What other things are you fearful of happening because of the virus? The economy crashing? What are the specific things that you fear? If we're afraid that there's just going to be chaos and everything's going to be turned upside down. We've all heard the teachings on mind training. We've all heard how to transform adversity into the path. Have we practiced those teachings? Are they firm in our minds so that we can use them? If they are, then there's no reason to fear. If they aren't, then we have some time now and we should become familiar with those teachings. Now think about your life and how fortunate you've been to have encountered the Dharma, 
you've done purification practice, you've accumulated merit, you've heard a lot of teachings and planted the seeds of the Dharma in your mind stream. Does that bring you a certain sense of satisfaction and joy that you've led a life with meaning, with purpose, that you're closer to awakening now than you were at the beginning of this lifetime. So try to rejoice at whatever you've done in this life. and then aspire to carry on with it in future lives. Especially to overcome the self-centered mind, the self-grasping, to attain full awakening so we can be of great benefit to sentient beings. However long that takes us to do, that's fine. But have a a feeling of, you know, you've done something really useful this life and be satisfied. So don't let your mind go in its old habits. This is the time to practice. Okay, so we're still talking about mind, body, and rebirth. And we're on page 178. And I think the last one we did was the consciousness of the next life is connected to the consciousness of the present life in that it is a continuation of that mind. Okay, so it's talking about how rebirth occurs without a permanent self and soul or without a, an external creator. Okay. So there's continuity and in which each one moment follows the next moment. Each moment of mind is not the same as the previous moment. It's a different moment. But it also isn't totally unrelated to the previous moment of mind because it's the result of that previous moment of mind. So if things were inherently existent, they would have to be either identical, one and the same with their parts, or completely unrelatedly different from them. There's only those two options because something that exists inherently is independent of all other things. So there's no uh, chance 
to have a dependent relationship. It's inherently existent. It's either identical or unrelated. So this one that says the consciousness of the next life is connected to the consciousness of the present life in that it is a continuation of that mind. If you think deeply about that, that becomes a meditation on emptiness. Because if the mind inherently existed, then either one moment of mind has to be exactly the same as the previous moment in the, in the chain of the, of the uh, con continuum, or it has to be unrelatedly separate. Okay. Here, it's, uh, it's not a thing of the whole and the parts, you know, because these two moments of mind aren't whole and parts. They're cause and effect. Yeah. But if you're analyzing even in terms of cause and effect, if they were inherently existent, they would have to be either inherently one or inherently separate. And those two moments of mind aren't either, but they are related. Yeah. And the second moment of mind doesn't pop out of nowhere or come out causelessly. It's conditioned, it's dependent on the previous moments of mind. So when we think about this, yeah, uh, you know, each moment of what's going on in our mind is a result of the kind of thoughts and feelings and ideas and so forth that have that we've cultivated in the past. And what we're thinking now and how we're training and directing our mind is creating the cause for what our mind is going to be like in the future. Yeah. So every moment that we panic and freak out, we are creating the cause to have that same state of mind again. We're imprinting it in our consciousness. Yeah. If you think that that is a realistic state of mind that is beneficial and virtuous, then yes, go ahead and be panicked and afraid and worried and everything. But if you think that that mind perhaps is an afflicted mind that needs to be abandoned, then don't nourish it. Yeah, Don't create the cause for it to continue on in the future. Okay, then the next one is the body of the present life and of the future life do not exist simultaneously. Neither do the mental aggregates of the two lives. Okay, so this is kind of relating to that whole thing too. How do two moments in a continuum you know, relate to each other. If they're inherently existent, they can, they don't relate to each other. That means things can happen causelessly and, you know, virtue can produce pain and, uh, you know, everything turns upside down and becomes totally chaotic because there's no cause and effect that operates. But that's not the world we live in. We know cause and effect always operate. Okay, 
So the body of this life and of the future life don't exist simultaneously. Yeah, they're, they're different, yeah. In this case, actually, the two physical bodies are unrelated, yeah, in the sense that, you know, this thing uh, just recycles the nature and then a new body comes that's made out of different material. Yeah, so this thing, uh, you know, we got to give up sometime anyway. Anyway, do you like this thing so much that you want to be attached to it when you die? Does this thing bring you ultimate happiness? Or is it a pain in the neck? Or a pain in the tush? <laughs> or, you know, is it something worthy of being attached to? Uh, so when we die, don't, don't cling to it. Okay. So this body dies, a new body comes. They don't exist at the same time. Okay. So it, this could be for somebody who thinks, well, I'm so attached to my body and I am my body and I never want to be separated from having a body. And if I really have to give this one up, there better be another one ready. Yeah. And maybe I can get them to exist at the same time so then I can just slide from one body to the next. Yeah, without really having to exit the first one and enter the second one. Maybe somebody's thinking like that. Okay, so the bodies, you leave one, you're in the bardo with the bardo body, then you get another body. If we talk in terms of Tantra, then there's a continuation of moments of uh, the extremely subtle wind. Okay. And similarly, the mental aggregates are the, of the two lives are different. So, uh, you know, feelings, discriminations, all those miscellaneous emotions and attitudes and views the human uh, consciousness we have, all the human mental aggregates, yeah, those all cease at the time of this, this life. So it's not like, you know, we take our whole, our whole mind exactly the way it is with the human perspective and the human uh, karmic vision and so on, that that comes with us to the next life, kind of like, we have a solid personality and our personality just, you know, is what goes from one life to the next because that's not the way it is, you know. The aggregates of mental aggregates of this life, they, they stop. We get new aggregates depending on karma, okay? So it's the ripening of the karma that influences uh, which aggregates we take and the fact that we take other aggregates is resulting from craving and clinging at the time of death. Because that's what makes the, the karma ripen and leads to a renewed existence. Okay, so this is all in the 12 links of dependent origination, how they work. Okay, then next one. We are not born with similar physical characteristics in one life 
after the next. So here's somebody who's really attached to their body. And you know, okay, maybe I'll look the same way in my next life. Okay. So someone who is beautiful in one life will not necessarily be beautiful in the next. What's the cause of being attractive, physically attractive? Fortitude. Yeah, practicing fortitude. Okay. So if we've practiced fortitude and that ripens, then we'll be attractive next lifetime, even if this lifetime we weren't so much. If we, uh, you know, have practiced a lot of anger, then even if we're attracted in this life, attractive in this life, in the next life, you know, if that karma ripens, we won't be. I always think about this thing of being attractive, you know, um, because there's a disadvantage to be to being very unattractive because then people don't want to kind of come near you. But I think there's also a disadvantage to being too attractive. And uh, I didn't realize this in, or I should say the way I realized this was uh, with a friend of mine, uh, my freshman year in college. And she was one of these people who everybody thought was beautiful, you know? And that really caused her a lot of problems. Yeah? Because people were attracted because of her beauty, not because of who she was. She was actually quite a nice person. But that's why a lot of people, especially the guys, you know, they weren't attracted to her for that. And, uh, and often, you know, if you're very attractive, people want to use you. Yeah, so I think kind of being somewhere in the middle, you know, not too unattractive, not too attractive. Yeah. Although I once heard somebody say, everybody who's young is good looking. <laughs> you know, I heard that when I was young and I thought, Huh, what are they talking about? Now, when I'm still young, but still but a little bit older, I realize it's true. Everybody who's young is very good looking. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay. Um, I've also heard in, in Ian Stevenson's book when he was doing research about rebirth about people having like a, a scar or a birthmark on the body of one life and then the next life having the same thing. I've heard of that and I think that happened with His Holiness's younger brother too uh, because before he was born his mother was pregnant and lost the child. No. The child was born and had a certain birthmark, but it died in its infancy. Do you remember what it was? It was something about like a birthmark or a mark on the body. So the mother gave birth to this little boy. I don't know how old he was when he died, but he died and the whole family was very sad. Uh -huh. And I don't know, somebody, it was, I don't know if it's the doctor or a llama, said to put a mark on the body 
So they took some butter and just smeared a little bit of butter somewhere on his body. Uh Then the mother got pregnant again and had a baby, and that baby had a birthmark on that same place. Okay. Okay. I never remember stories, all the complete details of stories. I'm glad you people do and can tell them for me. I'll remember part of it, you know. (laughs) Okay. So maybe in some situations that happens, but yeah. The boy that you recommended, the Pali um, chanting one, Mm -hmm. um, who remembered that he was a student of, or an assistant and student of Buddha Gosha. And uh, he shared that he remembered actually some lifetimes and where he was uh, reborn in frequency as a monk, uh, not reborn as a monk, but um, went the monk path and then also a layman where he had a family and he said he was a monk and a layman <laughs> many times. So oh. these two words, I said, oh, not a woman, so, so, <laughs> and how can that be? <laughs> so maybe that was a specific exception because he, who knows, through his practice um, could choose or... I don't know, had this power to come happening in a way that how he wanted it. Oh, he um, wanted, I don't understand. He wanted to be a monk and then he wanted to be a layman? No, he just said what was for me surprising that he was reborn several times as a monk, uh, as a, excuse me, as a man, and then um, several times where he chose the path as a monk and several times where he chose the path as a layman. Oh, layman, but he was yeah. never born as a woman. Never. Uh, He did not mention it. (laughs) You know what I find very interesting, and this really, I think, indicates a lot of uh, self-grasping, is even in the Jataka tales, you know, when they tell the stories, the people, uh, whatever sex they are now, when they tell the story of the previous life in the Jataka tales, they, they might have been an animal or a deva or some other living being, but they were always the same sex. So I find that rather strange. I consider that kind of an indication of how strongly uh, people grasp at the gender of, of the child, because that's the first thing that people ask when a baby's born. Yeah, they don't ask what color it is. They don't ask about its intelligence or its nationality. They ask, is it a boy or a girl? So I think that gets quite uh, solidified in people's minds. Yeah, But I don't think that that's actually how rebirth works. If you can be born in an entirely different body, in a different realm, then certainly you can be born as a different sex. I remember the uh, the book about Jitsuma that um, the monk said that in Tibet they had that portrait of the previous life, which is a man uh, with blue eyes and sharp nose and shares similar features. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they could recognize her. Lama Yeshi was a, a woman in his previous life. We are not necessarily born in the same realm in the next life. A human being will not necessarily be reborn as a human being. The future life depends on the karma created in this life 
and also the karma created in previous lives and the karma that ripens at the time of death. So we, you know, we're not guaranteed to have a human birth. Yeah. I've heard of uh, maybe some forms of Hinduism, I'm not sure, have the idea that when you're reborn, you you either are reborn in the same realm or you somehow go up, that it's always an upward kind of thing. Um, there may be some strands and some, you know, sects who, who believe that. But in Buddhism, they say, you know, you can go up and down in terms of the realms. Uh, and we do go up and down depending upon what uh, karma is heaviest that at the time we die, because that's the one that will ripen first. Okay, so we're not guaranteed to um, to have the the same kind of form. So that's why uh, you know it's interesting to think, and and especially in the meditation on precious human life, to try and think of what it would be like to have the body of another realm and especially to have the mental aggregates of, an, of another of being in another realm. Uh, I remember one time I was in, I think it was Malaysia, and they, they took me to a, a bird park or a zoo or something. This was a long time ago. And there was one bird, I don't know what it's called, but it had a big, colorful beak that had a substantial body with a big beak. And uh, we made eye contact, and we held that eye contact for quite a while. And I really felt like, wow, there is a living being there with intelligence, but it cannot express its intelligence because it was confined by that body and the kind of brain that body had, the kind of uh, sense faculties it had. But it was such a strong feeling as, you know, there is an intelligent living being there that is trapped in that body. So that could happen to us where we feel trapped in a body and unable to express ourselves, or it could be our kitties. I don't get the feeling that our kitties feel like they're trapped in their body. I think they're, you know, they're kind of like, yeah, I like kind of lying around all day and sleeping and, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So, you know, that's another thing that could happen. You just get so into your next set of aggregates yeah, that you, you lose whatever intelligence you had in this life. Yeah? I had that same experience um, just, I think it was yesterday. Uh, the neighbors have new peacocks down there and one of them is so friendly. It just yes. runs up. Yes, and I've had that too. Venerable Jampa gave me some food 
to yeah. feed it yesterday, and it, it wasn't really interested, but it kept pecking at my robe. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it kept looking at me, and I got the sense, yes, there is intelligence trapped in that bird, yeah. and it's trying to communicate, yeah. but it can't. And it's it really kind of scared me. Yeah, it, it really makes me believe in karma. Yeah, you know, because the other birds they don't care. No, but why that one? Why yeah. is it so attractive? Yeah, and like you know, who was he before that created the karma to be like that? Because that's it's a it's a peahen. Yeah, and I've had the same thing two weeks ago, coming up and like biting my robe and pulling my robe, and seeing me and like running as fast as she could to catch up with me and then following me on the road and I'm going who is this bird you know yeah who is that because obviously some connection with the sangha huh I was reading a book about uh, the lives of wolves in the wild mm. and the um researcher was talking about um, their life and how impressed she was by their intelligence and how they run their packs and what they do and, and how they do it and um, yeah it does um, speak of their uh, you call it the wisdom of wolves and so yeah. it does speak of how they must use their resources their intelligence to survive and thrive in the wild so yeah but the question comes do i want to have a use my intelligence in that way do i want do i want to be an intelligent wolf you know who knows how to kill quickly yeah so you, yeah we can look at, the, at, at with wonder at the animal realm, but don't ever think you want to be like that. Um, when they say ignorance is bliss, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> don't wish for it. Okay, next one is a virtuous action cannot propel an unfortunate rebirth and a non-virtuous action cannot propel a fortunate one. Okay, so this is one of the four characteristics, general characteristics of karma. Yeah, is that uh, it, if we want happiness, the causes of happiness are always virtue, never non-virtue. If there's suffering, the causes of suffering were always non-virtue, never virtue. So that's looking from the effect back to the cause. If we look from the cause to the effect, whenever we create non-virtue, don't expect a good result. Whenever we create virtue, know that a good result will come. You know, never a bad one, but it may come in the next life. Okay. But there's no way of cheating the law of karma, you know. There's no way of cheating that. It's just a natural law. And there's nobody who operates it. There's no creator, no manager of the universe. There's no one to bargain with. Yeah. There's no one to bribe. 
There's no one to brown nose up to, you know. We experience the result of our own actions, and that's it. Yeah. So we have to be aware of that and be responsible for our actions. Okay, the next one is many consciousnesses do not arise from a single consciousness. So there's one, you know, each living being, uh, the, the term person is posited, is designated in dependence on the continuity of consciousness. So, uh, you know, there's many continuities of consciousness, so there's many persons, yeah? And it's not like some of these streams break apart and reconfigure into other minds, okay? So we may use like a river or a stream as an analogy, but remember, not all aspects of an analogy fit the thing that you're analy- that you're analogizing, um, because a river can split into many little tributaries, but a mind stream never splits. Okay. Now somebody's going to ask, what about those uh, the lamas who? Uh, you know, pass away, and then there's more than, there's like three bodies that come, three people that come from them, okay? My answer is, I don't know. Go ask them how it works. They have the experience, ask them. Okay, I have no idea. Then someone cannot be born in a fortunate realm without having engaged in virtuous actions, and cannot be born in an unfortunate state without having created non-virtuous actions. Okay, so we, we've been born in a fortunate state. This is because of our previous virtuous actions. Okay, it wasn't because we were a messed up person and did a lot of non-virtue. It was because, you know, we kept precepts in the past, we, we were generous, We practiced well, so we have this life, okay? And, um, of course, next life, it's going to depend on the karma that ripens. We also have uh, not only the good propelling karma to, uh, to be born with this present body, but a lot of good completing karma, too, because, uh, you know, we're born in a land where there's food that's, you know, much more peaceful than other places. Yeah. The fact that it doesn't have coronavirus kits, that's due to our karma also, as well as governmental inefficiency. But our karma has a role in it. Okay. Why are we here in a place where, you know, where it's such so unprepared for a crisis. Yeah, that's a a result of our karma. But overall, when we look at our lives, boy, you know, we've had good propelling karma and good completing karma. The kitties, on the other hand, have fantastic completing karma, but their propelling karma wound them up in a cat body. Okay, 
But as far as cats, boy, they, they got it really good. Yeah. I don't know if they appreciate that. <laughs> Just like, you know, how much do we appreciate how good we have it? Okay. And then uh, the last one is a birth is not the handiwork of an independent external creator. So there's no God, no manager, no cosmic substance, no, uh, you know, nothing external that is, that we all came out of and we're all merging back into or that created us and controls us and manages the universe. Okay. And we already went through some of the, the proofs why that can't be, you know, foremost is, uh, you know, is that creator permanent or impermanent? If it's impermanent, then what are the causes of the creator? If the creator is permanent, then it can't create because create means that something has to change. So those are, are two of the, the main things that, you know, show it doesn't work to posit a creator. It may be emotionally comfortable. Yeah, but logically, there's difficulties with it. Okay, now the next section, two sections are quite interesting. So in the sutra, uh, the Buddha set forth eight examples. Um, it says eight examples seen together will convey an idea of how rebirth occurs. So there's eight examples that kind of show us how rebirth occurs. And then in case we misunderstand something about the example, then it, it, you know, the Buddha explains how another one of the examples corrects that misunderstanding. Okay. So this is a good example of what I just said that Every time you make an example, it doesn't fit in, in, in all ways. And sometimes we misunderstand the example and then come up with, a, with the wrong idea. Okay. So here, eight examples uh, of how rebirth occurs. So the first one is a student learning from her teacher's lectures represents the next life being affected by the present one. So in the same way that the student uh, is affected uh, and learns from and gets her ideas from her teacher, yeah, then the future life is affected by the present one. Okay. Yeah. So you get the analogy and, and, and it's good to think about the meaning of that analogy too. Yeah. So how is this life affected by our previous life? How will our next life be affected by this life? Okay, then the second ex uh, example is a lamp being lit from another lamp. Okay, so you have like two lamps and, or two candles and you light one from the other, yeah? Okay, so that indicates that while a new life begins, nothing permanent is transmitted and the next, and that the next life depends on a cause. 
Okay, so when you light one candle from another one, there's nothing uh, permanent that goes from the first candle to the second one to make the second one burn. Okay, there's nothing permanent that goes. There's no, so similarly, there's no soul that goes from one life to the next. Okay, and this example shows that the next life depends on a cause because that second candle being lit depends on the flame of the first candle. Okay. Then the third example is a reflection in a mirror. And that illustrates that the next life comes about due to the existence of the previous life. Okay, so uh, and although nothing is transferred from one life to the next, the next rebirth is assured. Okay, so when there's a reflection in the mirror, yeah, it a reflection is a an impermanent phenomena, which means it has causes. Okay, so it's a dependent phenomena. It depends if there's a reflection of a face. It depends on somebody standing in the area where the mirror, you know, can reflect it. It depends on there being light in the room. Yeah, it depends on the angle that the person's standing at, standing in. So the reflection is a dependent phenomena. Okay. And um, it illustrates that the next life comes about due to the existence of the previous one. So due to the existence of a person standing in front of a mirror, there's the reflection of the face in the mirror. Okay. And nothing is transferred from one life to the next. So nothing goes. That, that face in the mirror is, looks just like this one. But nothing went from this one to that one. Yeah? This face and that mirror reflection are dependent, but nothing went from this face into that. So in the same way, yeah, there's no kind of soul or I or me that goes from one life to the next. Okay, the future self is dependent on traits of this self, but isn't the same. Okay, then a bossed impression, like on a stamp, yeah. So bossed impressions and designs emerging from stamps indicates that we are reborn according to the actions we have done. So according to how the stamp was carved or made, that's what, when you stamp it, that's what the design looks like. So according to the karma that we create in previous lifetimes, what, we, what rebirth we have, what we experience, you know, what environment we're born into and so on, that uh, comes about, you know. And so because it's, it's carved in a certain design, you're going to get that result. 
It's not that you're gonna you can carve the stamp in one in one design, stamp it, and you come out with something that looks totally different. Yeah, so virtue creates good results, non-virtue creates bad results. So it's that kind of thing too. The the uh what do you call it? This is not symmetry, but the you know how it, how it works. The the the, the result is concordant with the cause. Okay. Then five, fire produced by a magnifying glass demonstrates that the next life could be in a different in a realm different from this life, just as the fire is different from the magnifying glass. Okay, so the fire is produced by the magnifying glass, but it sure looks a lot different than the magnifying glass. Okay, so in, in the same way, the next life is produced from the actions of this life, and it could look a lot different than this life if we're born into another realm. Okay, so cause and effect don't always look uh, look similar. I mean, a sprout doesn't look anything like a seed, does it? Yeah. Okay, then six. Oh, six is about sprouts and seeds. Um, so six is sprouts going growing from seeds shows that one doesn't disintegrate and cease to exist at death. So the seed ceases, it goes out of existence, and when it ceases, the sprout arises. Okay? So the ceasing of the of the seed, the arising of the sprout, yeah, they come along together. Mm -hmm. Now an interesting question is. When the sprout is arising, okay, the seed that is ceasing, so think of a seed that is ceasing because it's in the process of, uh, like remember when we were kids and did you put like lima beans in a, in a jar with uh, paper, what paper towels? Okay, so when those lima beans were in the, they were in the process of ceasing, and changing into sprouts, okay? While they were ceasing, they existed, right? So the ceasing of the seed happens at the same time as the arising of the sprout. Where is the sprout that's arising? Does it exist at the same time as the seed that's ceasing? Does it? We say a sprout is arising. There has to be an agent that's doing that action. That's the sprout that's arising. Does that sprout exist at the same time as the seed that's ceasing? No, because cause and effect can't exist at the same time. Okay. Yeah. So cause and effect don't exist at the same time. Then what is the seed that's arising? This, what, what's the, the sprout that's arising? Isn't the sprout doing the action of arising? So 
if the sprout is the is the agent that's arising, where is it? Hmm? <laughs> then it exists at the same time. When we say when we say the sprout is arising, yeah, what sprout are we talking about? We're talking about the future sprout. Does the future sprout exist now? Does it have form now? No. Does it exist? Yeah, a fruit future sprout exists. That sprout is doing the action of arising. Okay, we say the sprout is arising, but it doesn't mean that there has to be a sprout there that is that you can see that is growing at the same time as the seed is ceasing. Okay. Also, can you mark the exact point at which that seed ceases and the sprout arises? No. And yet we say the seed ceases and the sprout arises, but we can't indicate when. Does this drive your mind a little bit crazy? Yeah. Yeah, it has to do with language. And it has to do with as soon as we give something a name, we concretize it. Okay, so the seed is arising, we think. I mean, the sprout is arising. We visualize a sprout that's arising. Yeah. There's no sprout there that we can see. We designate sprout, you know, on the, on the basis of there being many of the causes for the sprout to arise, but not all of them. Something still needs to be, you know, another condition needs to come. But on that basis, we still call it a sprout. But it's not actually a sprout, is it? Yeah. In the same way, when, um, okay, in the springtime, when Venerable Nima's out in the garden, and I'll go out and I'll say, what are you planting? And she says, I'm planting uh, squash, and I'm planting uh, bok choy, and, you know, I don't see any squash, I don't see any bok choy, I don't see any peppers. Yeah, she tells me she's planting these things. I don't see them. She's planting the seeds. Okay, so we, we talk about, you know, I'm planting bok choy because we're planting the seeds of bok choy. Okay, so it shows that we see a relationship between the cause and the effect. But our language, yeah, remember I always say conventional truths are messy? Because similar with conventional language, it's not you know, so you can't draw a line around things, even when we give them a name. Okay? 
Because where is that bok choy? Either that or do I say, Venerable Nima, you're lying to me. (laughs) (laughs) But it also has to do with the visual consciousness because there is a moment when you can still pull the sprout and you will see that the seed is still hanging on to the bottom of that sprout. And it would give the impression that both the seed and the sprout are existing at that same moment. And in fact, that's not the case because the potentiality of the seed has already um, ceased. Uh, the sprout the um, has come out. Yeah. So. so it's the shell of the seed that's hanging on. But still, we can't find exactly that moment where the last bit of potential from the seed became the sprout. Yeah can't find it. And, you know, a lot of uh, what we argue about in courts of law are this kind of thing. Yeah. What exactly does a word mean? And what qualifies as the meaning of a, a certain word? Yeah. We have innocent and guilty. So there's some action. Yeah. Does it, which, you know, that action is described by which word? Which which term are we going to put on that action? You know? So you have, uh, you know, like like Harvey Weinstein, the, the big thing that just happened. He got sentenced for t- 23 years in prison. Yeah? But, you know, you have this big trial. You have how many lawyers, prosecutors, defense attorneys, it's a big production. It takes a long time. There's the jury who's sequestered and they lose their freedom. And, you know, for the time they're listening to it and all these women coming and testifying and sobbing and some people believing them and some people not believing them. And it's all to decide which word applies. Yeah, what do we label? What do we designate that action? Yeah, quite interesting when you think about it, isn't it? And how many times have we gotten upset about things when people designate us with a a term that we don't feel applies to us? Yeah. And then you know, we get very upset, very defensive. You knock the can of bleach all over my new robe, and it's no longer maroon, it is pink. So it matches all the rest of your laundry. <laughs> no, I didn't spill the bleach. Yeah, well, how'd it get there? It fell over. I didn't spill it. Yeah. Yes, you did. You walked by and you knocked it over. I did not knock it over. I didn't touch it. I walked by and it fell. (laughs) 
you know, and that argument can go on for quite a while, can't it? Or you think of couples, you know, you're my husband, you're my wife. And then one of them has a, a friend on the outside, you know. So whose husband are you? Whose wife are you? Whose partner are you? Yeah. Do you belong to her? Do you belong to me? Do you belong to him or do you belong to me? Yeah. So again, words. But those words have meaning. But the meaning is created by our mind. Okay. Um, then seven. Salivating from the mention of something that tastes sour indicates taking rebirth by the force of our previous actions, not by choice, whim, wish or whim. Okay, so when you eat something sour and you salivate, it's not by choice or wish or whim. It just happens, okay? And so in the same way, um, we take rebirth by the force of our actions, not because we're, you know, sitting around somewhere kind of deciding what we want to be reborn as and you know, I, do, I don't want that as a mother and father. Here, you come over here and you mate with this one because I want to be your child. And no, that's it's it's the causes have been created and the conditions ripen, and there we go. Okay. But it is it's interesting how we can have this idea of choosing our rebirth. You know, again, it's, it's similar to that idea of there being a God. You know, there's somebody, somebody who has the power to look beyond causes and conditions and make decisions without depending on previous causes. Yeah, it's the same kind of idea, isn't it? Okay, then eight is an echo, illustrates that we take rebirth when conditions are ripe and no obstacles are present. Also, the future life is neither identical with nor completely different from the present one. Okay, so an echo happens when the conditions are there but it doesn't happen when there's no conditions. Okay, so you can be in some places. Have you noticed in some places on the property, like sometimes when you're down by the barn, you can hear an echo from uh, up by uh, my, you know, Prajna Cottage. Yeah, the conditions are there. But if you uh, stand somewhere else on the property, yeah, you don't hear an echo. So, yeah, there has to be the causes and no obstruction. Okay. And, uh, you know, another meaning of that is that future life isn't identical with the present life or completely different. So an echo isn't the same as the, the voice or the initial sound, but it also isn't totally different because it sounds... Just like it, or pretty much like it. 
Okay, neat kind of examples, aren't they? Do you like these examples? I thought this part was very interesting. Okay, so although each example illustrates an important point about rebirth, there's the possibility that we misunderstand it. Therefore, one example acts to correct the possible misinterpretation of another. Okay? So from the example of a student learning from the lectures of the teacher, we may think that a being takes rebirth into the next life without its previous consciousness having ceased. So because the teacher and the student live at, exist at the same time, yeah, we may misinterpret the example, because yeah, the example means that the future life is, is affected by the present one, we may misinterpret that to think that, um, that the previous consciousness doesn't have to cease for the, next, the consciousness of the next life to arise, okay? So to counteract this misunderstanding, the example of the seed, which was number six, um, shows that the cause must change to produce its result. Yeah, cause has to cease. Similarly, a permanent self or soul does not transmigrate from one life to the next. Rather, the last moments of consciousness in this life must cease for the first moment of consciousness in the next life to arise. So this is this really goes against our mind that you know wants to have our cake and eat it too. Yeah, we 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 want to uh, uh, we want to seize the cause by eating the cake, but we want to still have the cause, the uneaten cake there. Yeah, and that's not the way it works. Okay. Got to choose. Okay. Then second, from the example of both lamps being present when one is lit from the other. So that example was to show that nothing is uh, per permanent, is transmitted, and that the future life depends on a cause. Okay, that was the meaning of that example. Okay. But we may think that the same body and mind exist in both this and the next life. Well, that's incorrect. The example of the echo prevents this misunderstanding because the, the echo is neither, pro, neither produced without someone making a noise nor simultaneous with the noise. The initial noise is not the same as the echo of it. Okay, but it's the result of it, so it's not entirely different. So same thing when one we go one life to the next. Okay, so the example of the reflection of the mirror so uh, illustrates that the next life comes about because of this one and that is nothing is transferred, but the next life is assured. Okay, so from the example of the reflection in a mirror, we may think that we have the same physical characteristics in previous and subsequent lives, because the reflection looks just like the face that it's a reflection of. 
The fire being produced by the magnifying glass corrects this because the fire and the magnifying glass look quite different. So from one life to the next, we're not going to look the same. Even in this life, we don't look the same. <laughs> then four, from the example of bossing stamps, emboss, embossing stamps, we may think that we are born in the same realm after death. Because remember the, the bossing stamps, um, uh, you, when you stamp it, you get the same design, not another design. So we may think that we're born into the same realm after death. But the example of the student learning from the lectures of the teacher remedies this because the teacher who represents this life and the student who represent the next life are not the same. So the stamp and then the uh, design in the clay are not the same. Okay, five, from the example of the magnifying glass, we may think that a virtuous action could lead to birth in an unfortunate state because the magnifying glass was showing that uh, one birth doesn't look like the next one. So we could think that, you know, uh, that, um, that a virtuous action could lead to unfortunate uh, rebirth and that a non-virtuous action could uh, lead to rebirth in a fortunate state. The example of one lamp being lit from another remedies this by showing that the result is concordant with the causes. When you light one candle from the next, they're, they're both flames and they look alike, okay? Although they're not exactly the same. Okay, so, but that shows that the result is concordant with the, the cause. So just as one life, light gives rise to another, virtuous and non-virtuous actions propel results concordant with them, a fortunate or unfortunate rebirth, respectively. So whenever we think we can cheat karma and create negativity and then think that, you know, a good rebirth will come from it, that's not going to work. Okay, then six, from the example of the seed... Yeah, so the seed was uh, to show that uh, that nothing uh, doesn't that nothing goes totally out of existence at the time of death. There's a continuity of consciousness. So, from the example of the seed, we could infer that one consciousness could give rise to numerous consciousnesses. Yeah. So instead of thinking, you know, uh, that that. Um, nothing goes out of existence, you think, oh, the seed, you know, can grow into many flowers, so one consciousness can give rise to many. So the example of an embossing stamp prevents this misinterpretation by showing that regardless of the design of a stamp, it impresses that very same design, not many other designs on that clay. Okay, then seven, from the example of the sour taste. Yeah, so the sour taste, um, salivating, indicates that we take rebirth by, because of our previous actions. 
So we may think by that example that someone could have a good rebirth even if he had not acted virtuously, and someone could have an unfortunate rebirth without having acted virtuously. Okay? Because the, the salivating, it just happens naturally, okay? So the example of the mirror counteracts this by illustrating that the image of the mirror, uh, the image in the mirror, exactly reflects that object. Okay. Then eight from the example of the echo, which is um, to show that the result comes when there's no obstructing forces and all the causes and conditions are assembled, and that the future life isn't identical or completely different than the past life. Okay, so from the example of the echo, we may think that no one is born unless the creator wished it, just as an echo is not heard unless a person has made a noise. The example of the sour taste counteracts this because only someone who has eaten something sour before would salivate at the mention of sour food. Okay, so you have to have a cause that gives rise to that result. And the cause is concordant, but it's not exactly the same and it's not exactly different. Likewise, only someone who has earlier indulged in afflictions and created uh, polluted karma would be subject to a conditioned birth, not others. So aryas, you know, are free from afflictive obscurations, and so they're not, and uh, there's nothing to cause polluted karma to ripen, so they will not be, uh, have a conditioned rebirth in that way. So having a basic understanding of rebirth, we see our present life as one among many. It is a product of our previous lives, and during it, we create causes for our future lives, liberation and awakening. So we will now look at the great opportunity this life presents us for spiritual practice. So the next uh, chapter starts with precious human life. So then the reflection, contemplate each of these examples to get an accurate idea of how rebirth occurs. Remembering that since they are examples, they do not correspond in all aspects with what they are exemplifying. Okay, so there's always the counterexample to correct any misunderstandings that we may have had. Okay, questions, comments? Yeah. I comment that this is so clear and it's a direct translation of a sutra. So I find it very interesting that there is um, Buddhists who say that the Buddha didn't teach rebirth. It's just like, it's all here. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't the, the this is the summary of the sutra. But it, yeah, it's very clear, isn't it? Yeah. Really detailed. Huh? And very detailed. And detailed. Yeah exactly how it happens. Yeah, so anyway, <laughs> people see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear. Back to earlier in the class, I've been
puzzling lately over over the aggregates in general, but over the um, what you call miscellaneous factors. What's the miscellaneous factors? Yeah, miscellaneous factors. When we talk about um, we don't get the same aggregates in the next life, but this little grab bag of of things mm -hmm. seems like a carrier of things. <laughs> So that, you know, the miscellaneous factors of the chameleon that, that in your next life, I mean, it will be different because you have a different body, but that, but those, those tendencies, those habits, those imprints from different part of your life, I mean, are going to show up in your third rebirth when you're a human again. Mm -hmm. uh, what they, about that particular aggregate? They say that the 13th Dalai Lama's personality was very different than the personality of the 14th Dalai Lama. And your personality is mostly, a lot of it is that fourth aggregate. Yeah? So, you know, your, ang your anger, your trust, your faith, your compassion, your uh, conceit, whatever it is, you know, everybody has uh, those afflictive uh, uh, everybody, all the ordinary beings have those afflictive uh, obscurations. And so we imprint some stronger than others. But exactly how they come up in the next body, uh, you know, in the next lifetime, is it depends on a lot of different conditions, what you encounter, yeah, in your lifetime. Uh, you know, it's not just, don't think that there's one cause and it's never affected by other conditions. Because you could have, uh, you know, a tendency to, um, I don't know, you know, maybe you're a kid who has a tendency to swat flies you like to kill, okay? But then you get born in a family and right away from the time you're really little, your parents are teaching you, don't kill the flies because they have consciousness and they want to be happy and not suffer just like you do. So then you stop killing the flies, you know, and then you really think about what you learned as a kid and, you know, you don't kill living beings in the rest of your life, even though maybe you had that imprint strongly from a previous life. Okay? So don't think that, you know, okay, there's this cause and it is totally cast in concrete. It never changes. There's only one way it can ripen. Okay, it's true. Virtue always ripens in happiness, but exactly how that virtue ripens, it's going to depend on many of the conditions that the being comes across. Okay, so all of this is like, there's a lot of, flexibility, there's a flow, there's a lot of motion. Don't think that things are, are so concrete. I was quite startled this past week with how my Catholic upbringing came roaring up. Um, I really, obviously, just really get it intellectually that there's no soul. Of course, as a Buddhist, there's no soul. But really hearing you say last week that the the mental aggregates dissolve, they they cease. It was kind of heartbreaking. 
Yeah. But just to see that, you know, how much we're influenced as children and well, for past lives too, but just to see it's just so much in there. And that's yeah. That actually made me a little bit afraid. So I have lots of work to do. Yeah. Well, that one's also that thinking that there's a soul is an acquired affliction, but the self-grasping itself is the innate one. I was thinking about is I've never had problems with rebirth mm -hmm. or the the argument that you know you see in uh, a very intelligent child that's maybe musically gifted mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering I don't know if I can phrase this clearly right now but um, obviously this is practiced from many many lifetimes like if a kid starts playing by ear a Mozart piece at age three mm -hmm. it's not just a previous life, right? It's probably many, many lives with that kind of very highly honed talent. Yeah, it, it could be. It could be. I can't say. Mm -hmm. That kind of detail, you have to ask the Buddha. Okay? So some people, maybe they practiced, they did their piano lessons religiously their whole life, and it was only one lifetime. Maybe other people... You know, they dragged at their piano lessons and it took them quite a while. <laughs> the film, The Groundhog Day, the guy does it over and over until, you know, he started learning piano. At the end of the thing, he's playing very well. Yeah. <laughs> Back to the very, very beginning um, where you gave us a motivation to shake our mind to distinguish um, if you are acting and fear, anxiety, worry, or if what we are thinking, doing is realistic. So I think that's very worth it to look into it, to determine it and to find it. And I, it may not be easy for people, for ourselves to identify really what is it, what is now realistic, um, what kind of thinking, planning, doing is realistic and what is overdue, you know, what mm -hmm. is coming from an afflicted mind. So I think everybody of us has, has to find that within themselves. Um, can't ask you for that, but I, I really think it's important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because we, you know, we hear the word coronavirus, and then the mind just explodes. And do we ever stop and think, what is a realistic thought, and what is completely out of the universe? Yeah. So I think that's one. One thing that Buddhism is trying to 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 do for us is to get us to learn to think clearly about the motivation. Uh, for me, that and all of that, nothing came up about that. It's about the fear of making a mistake. The fear of making, making a mistake. mistake. Mm. And I can see in this lifetime how it's strong in me. Mm. which it stops me from doing things because the fear of making a mistake, yeah. the fear of somebody will die because of me. And mm. it's, just, it's very strong. Mm. Mm. And, and I see how many times I have stopped. Like, I've studied in a few different uh, area and I always did good. Mm -hmm. And I was often first in class. But when it was time to practice, I quit. Mm. And, I, and here I see the same thing. I quit 
and and if, yeah, fear of making a mistake, making yeah. a mistake, being responsible of a fucking mess. Yeah. Yeah, and how often I think all of us stop ourselves from doing things because we're afraid of something. If not making a mistake, we're afraid of what other people will think of us. Or, you know, who knows what. Our mind can dream up a lot of things. A question from FOSA Singapore. Um, uh, last week, the class discussion on merit sharing and dedicating. So that's what the question's about. Is there a difference between merit sharing and dedicating? Can we really share merit? Or is it that our virtuous actions inspire others and others following and others follow the examples oh, sorry um follow the examples that to create merit for themselves um and also like chanting for the deceased during the 49 days can we really share our merit with them unless the deceased try to manage their afflictive mind during the lifetime yeah. to get a better rebirth so the the term it's sharing merit gives you the idea that you have a bank account with merit in it, and the other person has a bank account with merit in it, or maybe not so much merit. So can I send them a draft, you know, so that I create the merit and then I just, wire, you know, I wire the draft to them and they get the merit. No, okay. We each experience the result of our own actions. Yeah. So sometimes they call it, trans, people translate it as transferring merit. We don't transfer merit. Yeah, we can't wire it to somebody else's account. Yeah. And you, you can't use a credit card and, you know, like, or PayPal and send your merit to somebody else. Okay. What we do is we dedicate the merit. In other words, we... Uh, Dear, how we would like that merit to ripen. Okay, so if if somebody is suffering or whatever, like you know, we're all dedicating merit for people uh, not to fall ill from the the coronavirus, or if they've fallen ill to recover. So we've created the merit, then we dedicate it. We're we're saying that we aspire that you know. Of course, it, it will ripen in the enlightenment of all beings, but it will specifically, you know, help soothe what's happening right now in, in terms of the world health situation, okay? But we aren't transferring merit to, you know, to anybody. And then a second question. Um, the class was asking whether dream yoga, which was mentioned um, last week as well, whether dream yoga is a Buddhist practice. And if it is, is it only for the higher practitioner, like a tantric practitioner, and only to be taught directly from, only to be learned directly from a teacher? Uh, yeah, there, I don't know in other religions if they have dream yoga, but dream there is dream yoga that is a tantric practice, Okay. So it's something uh, that, uh, you know, if they, they, there's another way to, the way that people often do dream, you know, 
watching dreams is, you know, trying to become aware of your when you're dreaming and to know, oh, I'm dreaming and this isn't really happening and everything. So that kind of thing with your dreams, everybody can do. The dream yoga specifically is a tantra practice. And that's something that's quite advanced and you have the initiation and you've done the generation stage and so on. Okay. But in the sense of just becoming aware when you're dreaming, that can be helpful. They often use that as an analogy for, um, for this life, uh, becoming aware that things do not exist the way they appear. It's about the uh, offering, giving the offering. When I think of dedicating the merits and all of that, how it feels for me that it's, I like to give it to all sentient beings, think mm -hmm. of it, but the feeling that I have inside is like that I'm giving it, I have no attach to it and it's, right. it's a feeling of selflessness kind of. Yeah. And, and that feeling is the feeling that I find is meritious. That merit, meritorious. meritorious. Vir virtuous. Meritorious. meritorious. Yes. Yeah. I, th that's how it feels that, that, yeah. that capability. I say, okay, I give it away. I don't care if I don't have any knee right. left. It's for other people for their benefit. Right. It's that feeling of. Right. And that's a good kind of feeling to have when we dedicate it. Okay. Yeah. To, to think, yeah, it's, it, I want to, I'm not attached to my merit. And I'm not being stingy about it. Of course, we experience the result of it, but to 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 have that feeling of you know I I did this action for others and I want them to experience the positive result. That's quite good. It's the way, yeah, we should train our mind to feel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>